Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Brian, welcome back. Happy 2023. Uh, Brian, I probably talked to you about this before, but every January when I get an email from Mark Fisher Fitness, I fondly remember the moment in the deep pandemic when you and I did a Zoom workout class together thanks to your generosity. And I think of it fondly. And um, even though these are promotional emails, I will get until the day I die. Yes, you will. Uh, that, was a, that was a shining moment in my memories of a, of a difficult time. And I hope you're, you have something similar to that. <laughs> no, uh, thanks for the reminder. But yes, Mark Fisher Fitness. It's uh, what I will say is, I'll, maybe I'll say, but this is a pre-draft. It's a great program. It's good for people on the road. And um, I use the Home Body Program. It's a New York City-based, very, very body-affirming and queer-affirming gym. And it's a, it's a good resource. And I yanked panel into it for one weird freebie. And we were both lifting kettlebells in our respective spaces. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember it very well. Um, went through a lot of different types of workouts in my basement. That was one of the <laughs> one of the better ones. Um, so I am very excited to introduce our guest co-hosts for this episode. We are focusing in this episode on indigenous theater and performance. This is the first of a new format that we are going to be producing um, on the podcast. And these are episodes which we're going to dedicate to specific research areas in theater and performance studies. In episodes of this kind, we will be inviting on special guests to join in conversation with some of the regular co-hosts, uh, and we're going to explore facets of important topics at the juncture of arts and academia. On today's episode, I am delighted to welcome first Madeline Sayet. She is a theater maker, director, playwright, performer, an assistant professor at Arizona State University and director of the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. Uh, Madeline Sayet, welcome to On Tap. Uh, thanks so much for having me here. We are delighted to have you. Uh, we are also delighted to be joined by Bethany Hughes of the University of Michigan. Professor Hughes is a scholar of 19th and 20th century Native American representation and contemporary indigenous performance. Her article, Oka Apisachi, uh, uh, Indigenous Feminism, Performance, and Protest, uh, which was published by Theater Journal in 2020, won the Gerald Cahan Prize for Best Article at Aster. Um, Professor Hughes, welcome to the podcast. Halito. Hello. It's nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. We are so pleased to have you both with us. And before we get into our topics, um, I would like to say that I am recording in my office at Washington University in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Miseria Tribe, the Miami people, and the Alini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded its lands by treaty under threat of destruction by the United States Army. And I would like to acknowledge this history, and I also thank the Booter Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information available. I'd also encourage listeners to learn more about the territory where they live, and please also read the land acknowledgement play on our, our the land acknowledgement page on our website on tappod.com to learn more. Today on the podcast, we've chosen three topics tied to different aspects of indigenous performance from a contemporary angle. 
We are going to talk about first sovereignty in native theater, by which we mean the concept and its role in the changes in native theater since the 1970s. Uh, we also read Stephanie Nohalani Tevis's article, The Theorist and the Theorized Indigenous Critiques of Performance Studies, a candid look at problems with the methods and institutional tendencies of performance studies from the point of view of native scholars, published in TDR in, in 2018. And finally, we read and we saw Madeline Sayet's one-woman show, Where We Belong, which leads us into the journey she took as a member of the Mohegan Nation, whose passion for Shakespeare took her to some fascinating and disturbing places. So to kick things off, sovereignty in native theater. So this is this concept um, is an active one in contemporary native theater. Madeline, I wonder if you might help us situate the term, um, its meaning in this context, in the arts context, perhaps more broadly, um, and, and what it tells us about the development of Native theater in the 21st century. Sure. So, like, the most basic version of sovereignty is, you know, um, governance and ownership over one's, um, one's body or oneself or nation. Um, and the way that it exists inside Native theater is... Uh, multifold insofar as a lot of the native theater movement built out of um, coming out of a time period in, with, in which a lot of our arts and culture were made illegal for long periods of time uh, into this moment, you know, of reclamation, of, of more and more acts of reclamation. And um, I think about it a lot as, you know, there, there are, Bethany can tell you a lot more about the history of many, many instances of native theater, but a lot of where I think about the contemporary native theater movement coming from is the 1970s. Um, and when I think about that time period, I think about how suddenly, uh, in terms of policy shift, a lot of things were possible in terms of religious freedom and artistic freedom um, and, and just basic uh, native rights that, that weren't up until that point. And, um, and then building out of that, it moves into this sort of real realization that the sovereignty of all of our nations, of each of our individual tribal nations, can be represented in our plays. And so when I think about sovereignty in Native theater, I think about how each individual play is an expression of sovereignty. And what that means is that it's really difficult, for very good reason, to take all of Native theater and lump it into one form. Um, because it's not actually representative of a single nation. It's representative of all of these many, many, many nations, and each of these nations has its own language, has its own culture, has its own practices, has different artists inside of it that might have their own different aesthetics and different genres within that. And so I think of it as a real way of expressing like the uniqueness of each of our nations. Like if I write a play as a Mohegan, it's completely different than a play a Clinkett friend of mine might write, and yet both of our plays might have expressions of each of our nation's sovereignty inside of them. And so I feel like like for that reason, um, native theater is also like an incredibly wonderful way to access uh, entire worldviews and philosophies that folks might not be exposed to because inside of each of these plays sort of inhabits a universe that has been there, is indigenous to this place, and yet uh, many people won't have heard the stories of. And so, yeah, so for me, when I think about sovereignty in native theater as a field, I think a lot about how um, we express our uniqueness as individual native nations in resistance to the narrative that came before us, the narratives of us all being one monolithic culture, um, because that feels like the greatest dichotomy to me between like, you know, native representation of ourselves on stage and what we get sort of essentialized and limited to uh, when we're in pieces by non-natives, um, the expansiveness of identity versus sort of the reduction to a single image or a single trope 
um, and the contrast of that. And one, and you know, one, the one in which we're actually able to represent ourselves and our voices and our nations and our peoples fully is infinitely more interesting and has so much more to offer um, to audiences. That's fantastic. So it, in, in a sense, um, I gather, and not just from what you said, but from yeah. some of the reading I've been doing, that it, it, it can function as a notion of aesthetic self-determination, but that's one valence of it. There's there's a way in which it resists uh, mono, uh, making native culture, native experience into a monolithic single thing. Is that? I think, yeah, right? I think that, I mean, I think if anything, it's, you know, uh, I mean, because even within different nations, you know, you would have, you know, if you take like Frank Katas and Vera Starbard, like two Clinkett playwrights, there are things, there are languages that they share and cultural values that they share, but their plays are still different. So I, I think about, but but in, in both cases, they both use in their work, their culture and their language and their expressions of selves and inside those plays inhabit Clinkett worldviews. So I think, I think that when I think about it, it's not, it's sort of multifaceted. It's not even really limited to like an, an aesthetic sense, I think, because Ro Rosie Seamus said this interesting thing yesterday uh, that I think is very true. Um, she said, my culture and my people live inside my body. And as storytellers, um, when we're telling our people's stories, there's something that is, uh, I was thinking a lot about this yesterday. I was thinking a lot about it also because I'm in the process of taking uh, my story, which is a solo play, and, and seeing what happens when another performer performs it. But when you're performing something that has this deep resonance as a Native person, that comes from this deep storytelling tradition, you have all of these layers that don't exist in Western performance. There's there's the things that you inherit in your body from your ancestors. There's the stories that are in your body from your ancestors. There's this deep cultural understanding. There's what you bring to your understanding of storytelling, um, which is different than Western storytelling. Um, there's a presence, there's a humility, there's a relationship with the audience. There's an accountability. There is an understanding that when you tell a story, what you're speaking out into the world um, means something and matters and is an act of medicine. Um, and then in relationship to all of that, right, there is like what you choose to tell now and why, and that it does always in fact have some sort of a reason that it's not neutral. So I think that there's just so much to the ways in which um, art and politics cannot be separated um, because like our very act of survival and our very ability to create art um, is, is an act of resistance insofar as like the fact that there were periods in time in which, you know, it like they understood that there was power and there was strength in that. And so they took that away from us um, because in order to erase us fully, they have to erase our ability to tell stories and our ability to make art and our cultures. And so by reclaiming that through our narratives, so much is possible. Um, and I think the thing that's exciting to me about the native theater, theater field right now, and it's not always, you know, sometimes the, the, there's urban Indian conversations that are quite a bit different too. Um, but the thing that's exciting to me about the field right now is it also feels like a conversation amongst nations. Um, because so often, so many of us are working together with other nations. It's as if we are engaged in constant acts of diplomacy and learning from each other and about each other's nations as we engage in the work. Thank you. Um, so reading an article, a chapter that, um, that Bethany, you circulated, uh, Birgit Dawes's chapter in the Cambridge History of Native American Theater published in 2020, um, of course, I was scanning for sovereignty. Um, and, and Dawes mentioned sovereignty sort of in passing, but in relation to a couple of plays, um, uh, Bruce King's Wolf in Camp and Chris Poppins' Princess White Deer's Two-Step. Um, and I got the sense in those contexts that she was saying that sovereignty is in some, 
that in some ways it's in tension with audience audience expectations, though in various ways. Um, do, does that sort of does that make sense? Is that a decent read of one of the valences of the value of sovereignty for for native arts practitioners? Uh, so I would jump in here if you don't mind, Maddie. Um, so the Dawes piece is is um, very identifiably written to a literary audience, right? Um, and so the kinds of criteria and the kinds of genre formations that she's attuned to are ones that read to that audience um, in ways that sovereignty comes up as a specific topic in native theater, um, but is not um, necessarily the topic in all theater. And what I think Maddie is saying and what I would also forward is that um, sovereignty is both a topic that can be discussed, but it is an enacted practice for indigenous nations that shows up in lots of different ways. And there are many um, scholars and indigenous scholars who've been writing about these things. Um, for instance, Robert Warrior has written about intellectual sovereignty. Jolene Rickard has written about visual sovereignty. Beverly Singer has written about cultural sovereignty. Scott Lyons has written about rhetorical sovereignty. Dylan Robinson has written about sensate sovereignty. Um, and so this concept of what does it mean to be a people and a polity and a nation? How do we work that out within the constraints of settler colonial nations and histories and, and temporalities? Um, so I think, you know, so it's sort of a yes and. Yes, uh, Dawes mm -hmm. is pointing to how sovereignty is a, a subject in that Native performance interrogates and challenges and explores and asserts, um, but sovereignty is also in um, what does it mean to persist and to um, provide sustenance for a nation and a people, um, which can come out in a lot of different ways. So is it, we're, we're sort of charting this and, and Dawes make similar moves in looking at the 1970s, but also the 1980s as some sort of um, a, a point of transition. You know, Maddie, you mentioned earlier that um, I believe that that this sort of, you can see various types of um, projects of reclamation emerging from that time. Do you have a sense of what might have been the precipitating events, what um, it was about the 70s or 80s that... Um, caused a, a, a sort of state change or a phase change in native drama, if it's, phase, if it's fair to say that there was one? Um, yeah, I think that there's a couple things happening. So I think that um, there is uh, the reality that, you know, that this is a moment in general of activism. Um, and so there's a lot of movements happening in tandem with each other. Um, I think that um, there are, so there are also, there's a lot of, there's the, the Red Power Movement and the American Indian Movement are happening at this time. Um, what gets referred to in academia a lot as the Native literary renaissance is also happening, right? There's lots of other ways in which this vocal reclamation is happening. But when I think about it, I think a lot about it in terms of uh, like actual shifts in consciousness also around policy, meaning like in 1975, there's the Indian Self-Determination Act, and you know, in 1978, there's the Indian Child Welfare Act and Indigenous and Indian Religious Freedom Act, and 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 the reason those things are significant, what I was trying to say before is that 
is that is that those things were not allowed. We were we were in a constant state for hundreds of years up to that of stripping away rights and stripping away rights and removing rights and removing rights and removing rights. And there's this shift happening as we get to this time period where actually suddenly, which is a huge deal if you've been in hundreds of years of things being taken away from you, suddenly you get little bits back. Um, and that that to me, it was interesting. I was teaching... Like I'm teaching contemporary native drama right now, and I'm not the the scholar and academic that Bethany is. So I was truly trying not to have to go <laughs> into too much of like the history. But I felt like when I went through all of the policy shifts um, between like the start of settler colonialism to that moment, it made me so excited to get to the 1970s because it was like, oh my god, like we're we're getting things like it made me emotional because it was like I, I wasn't even there you know I, I understood that's where native theater came from like the contemporary native theater as we know it but this idea that actually for the first time it was like our voices mattered like for the first time we were allowed to express ourselves and it, it was part of a fight don't get me wrong it was always part of a fight it was never like the government has now decided that you can you know you can just do things um but I think that there was such collective momentum around um, around civil rights movements at that time. And I also think that there was some attention to be to be given to the fact that there were these huge political protest moments, um, such as, you know, the standoff at Wounded Knee and um, the occupation at Alcatraz. There were also similarly to the way that um, the way that Standing Rock drew attention to Native peoples and Native stories, there was there was attention shifting to what's actually happening with Native people. Um, that also sometimes has a real real sort of consciousness shift in terms of some of these movements. But I think I think that um, yeah, I think it was a real moment and and time period of reclamation. And also, I think artistically, it was interesting. Um, Muriel Miguel was talking to uh, to my class yesterday. And, and um, from Spider Woman Theater, um, uh, which is you know uh, the oldest uh, you know Native uh, women-run theater theater company in North America, and um, and and it was funny because after she finished the class, you know there was this consciousness of like that was the beginning of Native theater, but also this consciousness of like oh there's also something very Brooklyn about her work, you know there's also something very informed by modern dance about her work, and so I feel like that moment creatively was also such a confluence that it it welcomed Native theater because it was an experimental artistic time period, and so actually I think there was like an openness in you know the downtown avant-garde New York theater scene at that moment to like what is this incredible work that these women are making. What is this incredible work that like Hene and the Native American Theater Ensemble are, you know, are doing? Like there was there was a kind of synergy of that moment, both creatively and politically, um, that I think really, really uh, allowed for some some expansive shifts in what is possible on stage and and who's interested in seeing that. Mm-hmm. Brian, you must have some some questions or or thoughts that you can proffer? Well, so many and so much thank you for the opportunity to be in conversation with you about these really compelling and and dynamic and all just um, a couple years ago, the Dramatist Guild offered a class in Native American drama with Rihanna Yazzie. And I took it because it was like, yeah, it's I'm self-taught entirely. I haven't had a lot of opportunity to be guided through this material by somebody who is a Native theater maker. 
And I've been sort of revisiting those, 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 uh, my notes from that. And as you were talking, I was just reminded of when was the Arts and Crafts Act? When was the Arts and Crafts Act? Which is like 1990. So there's these different waves of the 70s and the 90s where these different um, recognitions and the, the opportunity for casino stuff and, you know, just these, these cycles of autonomy and of capacity building among um, that that is, I think, generationally something that we see in the momentum, at least in the southern part of North America, of changing. But the thing I'm also thinking a lot about is um, we had the opportunity, as we were thinking about sovereignty, we were thinking also in dialogue with Mary Catherine Nagel's play, Sovereignty. And uh, so that was one of the invitations that the, those of us gathered on the call um, on on the on the podcast today sort of had the opportunity to visit that play if it was new to us or revisit it if we knew it. And one of the things I had not encountered um, sovereignty uh, except reading about it, but I had um, encountered both in video form and on page um, Manahata. And so it was striking to sort of encounter sovereignty and to see the way that Nagel's dramaturgy, um, uh, I'm, I'm not confident offering a summary of sovereignty, so perhaps somebody else can hop in in a moment. But one of the things that's really striking about Nagel's dramaturgy generally that I think really comes to really bold effectiveness in uh, sovereignty is often playing two temporal registers um, uh, you know, in alternate in a stage reality, an alternating sequence where characters step into a very different time period and step into a very contemporary, almost relatable sort of uh, sort of time period. And in this case, I thought I was thinking of it in relationship to sovereignty in terms of in in the play sovereignty. There's this questions of legal precedent, this question of a legal act that created and dispersed um, the sense of community among a particular tribe. And then this question of what is the opportunity under sort of particular loopholes or legal. But the thing that really struck me was that I love the way that Nagel plays these two temporal realities, very distant historical period, to really activate a different sense of native time to activate a sense that it's not about legal precedent, it's not necessarily the linearity of precedent, but it is this sort of constant, re, like it's a constant presence of the past, a constant presence of the past and the action of the future, uh, of the present and the future, and the responsibility of native of the native characters in this play to constantly reckon with the past and all of its pain and interpersonal, stu uh, interpersonal stuff, but also in the responsibility of living forward as a people. And that, for me, I thought really galvanized some of what um, I think theatrically, which always exists in multiple time registers anyway, like there's a theatrical capacity to sort of hold conceptually the fact that there is a different way of living in time as um, as a native native human. And so I think that this, I, I'm curious about my response of just like, wow, this is a really powerful way to sort of activate the experiential understanding of a native vision of sovereignty that is about this sort of capaciousness of living one's responsible to, responsibility to one's ancestors, one's responsibility to one's present, and then one's responsibility to soon being an ancestor, this sort of multiple register. So that's just my riff on that in terms of, um, and I'm curious if I'm, again, like sort of, how does that sound? Am I off the mark or am I sort of in the right, right sort of neighborhood? <laughs> Sorry, I was pausing. I thought you were going to say something, Bethany. Um, uh, yeah, no, I think that that's right. I think that, you know, what you'll see throughout, um, I try and I, I try like aggressively to to not uh, 
like put themes into native theater because I'm always like, mm, it's all different, depends on the, but I, I, one thing that you will see through, throughout a lot of different uh, plays within the native theater canon is a very different relationship to time, is this relationship to time being cyclic as opposed to something that happened and then doesn't come back, right? That there are these cycles. And uh, Mary Catherine's uh, manifestation of this, of this argument that she also had to make to artistic directors for a long time when they would say, oh, we don't want to produce native plays because those are in the past. She, she, a lot of this came out of her actually, you know, having to convince people, no, actually the past is the present. These are not separate things. And, and the thing that, one of the things I think is really um, beautiful about MK's plays is that like, not only do you see the ways in which from a policy perspective, nothing has changed or things are the same, but also you can then see sort of uh, the the spiritual element of it as well, right? That these people are in each other's bodies, that like the that, that the ancestor who is who is inhabiting this one space is also this other, other character and that, you know, that next generation is still holding that in their body, that those, those, those time spaces aren't defined the way that like, you know, Aristotelian logic would want them to be uh, for native people, but that actually um, all of these things do exist um, in a space where they, they all are deeply, deeply connected. When I talk about this kind of idea with my students, I tend to try to explain it um, as um, like relationship, ongoing relationship. And that um, in these sorts of constructions and in many indigenous communities, relationship and obligations of relationship um, extend forward and back and all around. Um, and it's not, so this is, this is like another way to talk about time, right? Like how do you experience yourself as in an active ongoing relationship with ancestors and, you know, multiple generations and hundreds of years? How do you understand yourself as in relationship to environment, to nature, um, to the earth, to the water, um, to non-human relations, right? And and so I think that's like that gets at it from another kind of perspective um, is I think that um, in, in this case, you know, Nagel's sovereignty play is actively trying to articulate through bodies themselves what kinds of relationships are ongoing for Native people um, and the stakes of maintaining those relationships and protecting and defending. Um, and so I think, yeah, that that's a thing that that play does really well is articulate it by showing us what it looks like. It's, it's a really fascinating play in a way I wish we had more time to dive into it. One of the things I learned about this play researching it is that uh, Nagel being an attorney um, by training sort of has put the play together. One of its functions is that it is shown in legal context at law schools, it's read at law schools, and that it can't, one of its aspects is that it can serve or sometimes it's packaged to serve as a primer for non-native audiences or for um, lawyers in training about um, native sovereignty in law, right? And perhaps this is a, you know, uh, infelicitous switch back to the kind of settler colonial time of legal precedent and linearity, but um, the Indian Child Welfare Act I think is up for reinterpretation by the Supreme Court, right? So that some of there may be momentous changes in the legal sovereignty aspect and in jurisprudence that are about to be revealed. And it it makes me wonder what her response, what Nagel's response might be, or how that might um, affect future readings of the of the play. Yeah, I also think what you're saying about um, the play being performed in law school, I think that's even more so true of Sliver of a Full Moon, um, Nagel's mm -hmm. play about the Violence Against Women Act, um, which was actually, it was specifically her intention that it be, it, it was it was not 
what was more important that it be performed in law schools because the thinking is is that those are the people who are going to be clerking for the future Supreme Court judges. And ultimately, you know, if they don't understand these issues, then things won't get better, then things won't be able to change. So actually, the most important people for those stories to be told for are those people in a lot of ways. And also, that play is really unique in that as part of the construct of the play, the survivors who testified to get the Violence Against Women Act passed, they 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 share their testimony again, um, their actual stories. And so... Um, uh, it's really um, it's really something that's really consciously always in all of her work throughout across the board is this aspect of if we don't share our stories, um, it it you know it will lead to to harm for our people, like not to like accidents, but to actual. Mm -hmm policy issues, whereas the sharing of our stories might have the potential to actually save lives and to actually shift in this really important way um, what people think about Native people and, and them truly seeing us as human. Um, mm -hmm. And understanding the complexity of these issues, because actually, you know, like as an attorney, Nagel is like deeply ingrained in the reality that like, you know, Indian law is is based on uh you know th this treaty system that actually like a lot of people don't understand like a lot of attorneys don't even understand and they 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 you know people think that like native people are getting some sort of special treatment or something that is actually like never true <laughs> but also um there's there are deep legal precedents um that most of most of the nation just doesn't understand in terms of um all of the relationships that have been set up between native nations and the american government well Thank you for, for this capacious and tantalizing conversation. Again, I just wish we could go further into <clears throat> the concept of sovereignty, but in a way I think it helps anchor what we have yet to talk about. Um, we also read for for the podcast today Stephanie Nohalani Tevis's article, The Theorist and the Theorized Indigenous Critiques of Performance Studies. So this is shifting gears a bit, a bit away from um, the category of drama, theater um, within the field and more toward um, – uh, performance studies, its um, its historical roots in in anthropology and those methods. Um, Bethany, I, I wonder, would you want to tell us about this article? Would you prefer that I sort of set up the the story that is Tevis's point of departure, or or could you sort of frame it up for us? Uh, I would actually like to hear you tell the story. <laughs> okay, okay, good. I'm happy to do that, and please, as with everything, uh, feel feel free to correct my missteps. Um, but I think this is pretty clear. The, the article is um, uh, written in response to an event that Tevis witnessed at uh, Performance Studies International um, Regional Gathering in 2015. This was a year in which PSI, I think, did its fluid states sort of multi-conference across the world, and they had an event in the Cook Islands. At this event, um, a Euro-New Zealander scholar presented on the various uses and contexts in which the uh, Maori haka um, is performed, including how it's used in tourist-facing situations, how it's used by um, New Zealand uh, rugby teams. Um, and so this scholar's assertions that such uses of haka were performative, 
uh, which I put in quotes, or artificial, were met with strong objections uh, from native scholars who were present and who noted that this theorization missed the actual spirit and, and spiritual and cultural importance of the Hakka um, in precisely these contexts. And so this for, for Tevis is a sort of, it's a point of departure for a, a I would say a trenchant critique and a historically informed and very, um, very strong critique of the, of performance studies. It's sort of, tendencies perhaps with, you know, um, uh, good intentions or, or, or what have you, um, but to sort of be rooted in anthro anthropological frameworks that are othering and that end up participating in a, in a logic of uh, replacement by invalidating certain, um, the ways that certain uh, indigenous performance practices are recontextualized. Um, so that's by, you know, tidy abstract of the of the article and, and people can can read read on their own um but bethany maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this develop what you sense are the implications of this argument um you know do you do you assign it to your grad students do you do you do you sort of keep it in mind as you're practicing your own scholarship uh yes and yes uh, so I assigned this piece to a graduate seminar on indigeneity and performance last year, um, and it proved really fruitful as a jumping off point. I assigned it actually pretty early in the semester. Um, so I really like this piece um, because in part of my, my own work in its uh, situation at sort of the intersection or actually trying to create an intersection between indigenous studies and uh, performance studies or theater studies. Um, and so what I think is really um, essential about Tevis's work in this piece is there is a critique of the sort of foundational structures of performance studies, the way that anthropology has um, informed it and structured it, uh, the way that uh, performance studies um, has an ongoing relationship with post-structuralism. Um, so there are some critiques built into the piece. Um, but really what Tevis is saying is there are, there are theories and ideas and methodologies that are um, developed and rich in Native American and Indigenous studies that would benefit performances studies in the areas that performance studies is interested in, right? Um, and sort of offering a rather than necessarily um, subscribing to these particular post-structuralist concepts or these particular practices that are sort of rooted in anthropology, why don't you try on or try to, um, you know, utilize ideas of settler colonialism and ideas of, uh, you know, like doesn't really forward sovereignty much, but these ideas about the political and legal identity and categories of, of indigenous peoples. Um, while at the same time, uh, she also, you know, comes out and says, here are the ideas from performance studies that are actually really useful to Native and Indigenous studies, right? Um, like there, there's ideas and conversations that are being had that would enrich um, each other if we could, we could start talking across. And she uses this, um, you know, very tense moment at an academic conference um, to really work through uh, what it is that's being brought to a conversation and what what these particular sort of keywords are actually carrying and communicating when you're talking sort of across these sort of disciplinary or field lines. Um, I can I can pause there while other people <laughs> jump in. Uh, I really like this piece, though, so I'm happy to keep talking. 
Um, yeah, uh, well, I'm also happy to hear you continue talking about it. Um, I, um, I really like this piece. I hadn't read it before, and I really appreciated it um, for everything that it was saying. And, and I feel like as, as a practitioner, I'm constantly engaging with this, this extreme difference between uh, being in any sort of performance environment in which um, you know, there are indigenous peoples in the audience and certain things are resonating with their, ex resonating with their experience versus um, audience members that are steeped in... Uh, other assumptions, uh, settler gaze, or just, uh, you know, folks in general who are steeped in certain assumptions and practices about what things mean that are not in tandem with whatever the work is, and how that leads to this actual real disconnect, um, like being able to palpably feel the difference in a space as a performer. I don't need to know whether or not there are indigenous people in the audience. I can tell whether or not there are indigenous people in the audience because the the palpable shift to objectification is is tangible often in terms of the energy of the space and the ways in which a space is being inhabited. Um, and so and so I, I was really excited by a lot of what was being said here and a lot of the, the clarity with which the article sort of pointed out some of the issues of trying to dissect and um, and approach these these uh, traditional practices with uh, with these anthropological uh, based viewpoints. That makes me think actually of um, Randy Reinhold's play Off the Rails, which is uh, mm -hmm. an adaptation of Measure for Measure with music set in the sort of Nebraska West um, during the boarding school area, so late 19th century, um, and my own viewing experience of it. Um, I got to see it, the premiere production at Oregon Shakes several years ago, and, um, you know, saw it at a matinee and um, really was moved as a Native person to see multiple Native characters talking to each other about issues that are really complex and really hard and really unclear. Things like, um, what does it mean to enact uh, love and care for your people? And under what conditions um, might you become complicit in systems that bring harm in order to help in other ways? And right, like identity issues and all of these like really deep things and like all of the Native characters didn't agree on what the outcome should be, right? Like they're actually having these conversations. Um, and and I thought this was amazing, and then intermission hit, and um, and there was a, a, a woman sitting next to me, and you know we started doing the chatted intermission thing, and uh, and it came out that she was not actually uh, thoroughly enjoying the performance, and she said I thought this was going to be a show about Indians, this is a show about a man and a woman. In the way that, um, and I wrote about this in, in HowlRound, so you can like track it down, but in a way that um, made it clear that her preparation as an audience member in this space did not allow her to see the thing that I could see was really happening on stage, um, which was meaningful and rich in its own, uh, you know, in its own way. Um, and so I, I think that sort of like expectations versus what's happening and that legibility. So some of that is cultural knowledge. But I think what Tevis is talking about, um, even more than that, are the, the ways in which... Um, 
uh, Native communities and Indigenous performers have been expected to perform in particular modes that make them culturally legible as Indian largely, right? Like the sort of the generic Indian figure. Um, and so those modes, which are really racialized performance practices, are experienced on the level of the body by Indigenous people in the same way that all of these policies and laws and constraints um, are also experienced, right? And so there's a way that Native people move through the world understanding race and politics as enmeshed and like inseparable um, and have been sort of repeatedly informed by various, um, you know, cultural spaces that they're actually very different. And, um, and so this is why um, when these like critiques of the haka come that, that they're um, inauthentic or that they're performative, right? Um, reads as these aren't real. Um, and mm -hmm. so indigenous audiences, uh, you know, in this space, in this conference, we're identifying like, what is it that we mean by real and what mm -hmm. is important to us by real? And Tevis is really forwarding the idea that's, that's um, throughout many works in native studies and indigenous studies about um, authenticity is coming not from like a single... Um, unified static past. There isn't a moment of authenticity that if we can just like reach back and reproduce it will be the real thing. Um, but the understanding in indigenous studies is that authenticity, and this is where Tevis brings in performance theory, is a performing, it is a doing, it is an enacting. And so Tevis says it's not that, that um, indigenous studies should be afraid of performativity as a concept or performance, but we should actually embrace it because that is what we we are doing. We are living mm -hmm. out ourselves and our nations and our lives. Um, and now I've lost where I was starting. So I'll just like slow it down. Well, one of the things <laughs> that I found, thanks, Bethany, because I think one of the things that it really, um, this piece, which thanks again for introducing it to me, I thought it was just the first time I've read a sort of a disciplinary discussion of performance studies that excited me and it made me think about and put it really in the context of settler colonialism, but also in terms of the question of what's the difference between commodification and economic need, like to sort of open up these questions mm. of, which is a sovereignty approach to it rather than a kind of a, you know, and, and going to the kind of glib way, like David Rahman years ago talked about the habit in performance studies to dismiss certain performers and performance traditions because of a bias within the field toward what he called grassrootsism, that it needed to be community-based, authentic, and all of this kind of stuff, and sort of saying that there's this kind of glib mis misunderstanding of the work that folks are doing in all sectors. Even if they're in the most commercial or commodified space, they're still doing work as folks doing work. And so how do we understand that? And for me, as, as I was listening to you talk, Bethany, one of the things that I'm really interested about is um, thinking about that, especially thinking of plays from the 70s or plays from the 80s, uh, even from the 90s, which often can be dismissed by contemporary critics or contemporaries, even student uh, students or critics, as being sort of like, oh, well, that's sort of like, that was commodified. And especially the way canonization functions in a way of dim diminishing what's the work of the play. I think we've seen a lot of revisitations of, say, Hansberry's work, saying what's actually going on as opposed to what it what the textbooks have said is going on. Like, how can we actually listen to the work being done by the, by the artist uh, and what's happening in that context? And, and for me, I think that this piece just opens up a lot of those questions about the mistrust of origins, the mistrust of, of, uh, of sort of commodifying or like not, that's not a great word for it, but sort of getting fixated on hybridity as opposed to multi-purpose action. 
and and I think it's a very clarifying piece to sort of understand like what what is the way you know and again that audience encounter that you described Bethany I think is a perfect example of this and I'm sure Maddie as you've been performing your work you've encountered any number of ways in which we can see these multiple tracks of engagement happening um, because I do think that this piece uh, names the fact that settler colonialism is not a, not a, a theoretical stance that has been fully engaged in theater and performance studies, right? And yet there is a kind of, it's absolutely urgent and necessary. And so it, 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 it's a very useful, I think it would be a great text to use if you want to talk about settler colonialism and also, and also other, the questions of indigeneity too, but how does that play out in performance? And what about a theater space as a settler colonial space? And what happens with, with other traditions or other bodies enter those spaces? Yeah, I, I I thought this was fantastic as well, and I'll I'll keep my reaction reactions short, but I'll flag real quick that um, it had reminded me of another really illuminating invocation of indigenous critique that I've been reading recently, which is from David Wingrow and David Graeber's um, The Dawn of Everything, which re-narrates Rousseau's um, criticisms of you know European civilization by pointing out that in fact there was an abundant discourse of criticism of French and English ways of life from the indigenous people of North America, which uh, liberal scholars in the main have discounted because they have said, well, we can't. This was reported by you know a French army soldier. This was published by such and such author. And so we can't trust it. We can't live, give it any credence. They point out that, in fact, there's abundant evidence that it was the discourse of um, indigenous people confronted with European settlers that sparked a lot of these conversations that we have mistakenly attributed to or wholly ascribed to um, people like Rousseau. Um, but it also had me thinking about the, the relationship that our field has, and in certain ways an unacknowledged, and, and well, not, not unacknowledged, completely acknowledged, but perhaps not fully understood um, uh, relationship that we have to cultural anthropology and some of the categories that we have unwittingly inherited from it. Um, Tevez mentions Maniszlowski uh, and, and Victor Turner, but there does seem to be this kind of issue of the difficulty of conceptualizing um, indigenous cultural practices uh, in the modern, right? That there's a tendency to want to say that there were these practices that belong to a, you know, a timeless history pre-contact, pre-colonialism. Then there is a sort of hybrid phase, right? And then there is a kind of modern phase. And those are categories that Victor Turner himself in his career um, worked on in his own work. And this you can you can find an analysis and a critique of this in um, an article by Benetta Jules Rosette that I was reading inter- uh, recently. But it seems like it's a similar thing, right? This scholar saw these uses of the haka and wanted to identify them as, you know, problematic hybridizations as opposed to something, you know, that had its own meaning and strength in the present moment. So, worth reading. Because we're not allowed to live in the present moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the tendency. We've that's been the, dead that's, for so long. That's the blind spot, yeah. Well, that, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the onto- ontological assumption of so much of Western yeah. epistemology, right? Is that that it's the invisibility which connects back to what you were saying early on, Maddie, about erasure or, or, or uh, you know... Um, 
you know, the other, you know, um, erasure or illegality, it needs to not be there. Like, and those are the, but it is uh, how to make that ontological real and it, or it needs to be objectified as in, I thought this play was about Indians, not about a man and a woman, you know, this kind of, this kind of way that that um, Western epistemology keeps insisting on itself. And even in the most sophisticated hands of a very sophisticated performance studies practitioner, here it showed up. And so, but how do we, how do we have a record, how do we have the capacity to recognize that dynamic replicating itself, especially in the rarefied realm of self-congratulating lefty progressive uh, performance studies conversations? How, when, when can we call this out when it shows up? And this, this is a sort of a, I, you know, I think it's a really accessible article. I think it's a great introduction to the history of the field. Uh, of performance studies. And so I think, great, yes, graduate students, but I think anybody interested in really revisiting what they think they know about the history of performance studies, this is a great reminder uh, to interrogate that history through this very expert eye of saying, what are, what are we not listening to if we're not listening to other fields in, in relation to our own? I think also like there, there's always more work to be done in a lot of these fields mm. on how do you articulate multiple gazes in mm -hmm. one in one article. I feel like that was what was really refreshing to me also about this article is I feel like so much of academia is a lens and critique of everyone else as opposed to situating things in terms of perspectives. Um, it's like I'm right and you're all these people are wrong is like the structure so often as opposed I feel like to actually setting up there is a viewpoint and then there is another viewpoint and this is why you can't actually see what I see, um, which I think is is really much deeper and and creates the potential for I think a, a lot a lot of conversations within this field that actually engage that way. So I was laughing because I was thinking about when you were talking, Brent. I was thinking about this one performance where um, uh, I had. I, I, I had injured my voice and so my understudy had to go on, but I wanted to see it. So I, I watched from the audience and when the play started that I was listening to the people in the audience and, um, and, and this woman was like, this play is about Brexit. I thought it was about American Indians. And the other one person was like, it's about an American Indian who goes to England. And then they were like, Oh, <laughs> like, and I just remember like, just like, I was trying so hard not to laugh, but they were so confused about like, how could it be about multiple things at the same, you know, at the same time? Yeah. Like, how could there be a native person who exists now? Um, and what would that mean? And how, you know, I just, I just, it was like a very present example for me of like sitting for, for a change, right? On the outside of my own story and watching someone watch what they thought would be me. Well, that's, that's a, perhaps a great transition for us to talk about your story, Maddie, because I think what you're describing is an early scene in the play where, which uh, connects to these questions of, of borders and where do they come from and who enforces them and what are the alibis that allow them to be traversed. And uh, so could you, I mean, so we all had the opportunity to read and to view a, a, a previously accessible recorded performance of your play Where We Belong, which has been sort of in the mix uh, over an extraordinary span of time, I guess 2018 or so to now, you know, it sort of straddles an interesting historical moment. Perhaps, would you be willing to give us a quick um uh, you know, uh, as you, I, I think panel has a question for you that he wants to ask you to sort of talk yeah. about it, Like, uh, I'll just let panel take the transition now. I thought I was being an elegant, helpful host, but I think I might've derailed you things were, a little bit. You, you have been, and you were, and I, I was like, oh, this, this is, 
too good of a moment for this segue. We got to grab it. Um, um, but yes, we we read, we watched um, uh, the the film version of of um, Maddie's play where we belong. Um, it's had a really fascinating production history. Maybe we can get into that in a moment. But I thought I would, you know, tee you up with actually a perhaps too difficult question. <laughs> um, uh, but if you're game, I, I given our discussion of native drama in the first segment. Um, you know, maybe it's too fresh and too new uh, to have that sort of broad sense of context, but I'm curious to know where you see this particular project or perhaps your work more broadly in the history of, of Native American drama. Yeah, so I think the weird thing about this piece for me when I think about it like in the context of Native drama as a whole is that when I created it, I wasn't intending for it to be a play. Um, and, um, and maybe that's why it sits, I feel like very much at, at a different intersection than, than a lot of my other work as a playwright. Um, I, I was just trying to process something. Um, and the only way I knew how to process it was through writing it out. And, um, and in terms of storytelling traditions that inhabit it, the one thing that I was thinking about was I was thinking about actually like my brain had like scooted like backwards and I was thinking more less about contemporary native drama and more about just oral tradition and how what happens if you if you share certain stories together in space with people and actually how that in of itself is a very very powerful act um and so and so I was honestly not um not expecting it to be shared I wasn't expecting people to want to hear it and then as its evolution continued, it was really important to me that it maintained the integrity of the original processing pattern that it held. So for me, it's easier to think about the play. I mean, one, I think about the play inside of time that it was written in 2018, um, which I feel like is a, is a very specific point in time. Uh, the version of the epilogue I think you all encountered was was while the theaters were still shut down. Um, so, so that was ending at a very specific time. The epilogue of the play actually changes each, each production, it, it accounts for whatever moment we've arrived in. Um, but most of the play takes takes place from the perspective of being in that um, Trump's presidency, uh, Brexit is ongoing sort of time period. Um, and, and thinking, I think at the time, that the perspectives of the general uh, audiences would shift in a different direction than they have shifted, I think I thought it would be like, oh, okay, things were going to get better. I thought things were going to get better. I don't know why I thought things were going to get better. I just, I, it was a very optimistic worldview that I thought maybe some of the problems we were encountering, you know, people would move on from as did not turn out to be the case. Um, uh, so, so a lot of what I was grappling with as a storyteller was actually being in that different space, being the play takes place just for context, because nobody knows what I'm talking about right now. The, the play takes place basically um, over the course of my journey of going to the UK to pursue a PhD in Shakespeare, uh, which I do in 2015, and how it uh, relates to the journeys of my ancestors, my Mohegan ancestors who had to go there on diplomatic missions in the 1700s. And, um, and it also deals with Shakespeare language and colonialism and the relationship between those things. But at the same time, it is also a transformation story of a bird who becomes of a wolf who becomes a bird. So all of those things sit on top of each other. And so within that structure, it's very, very much a Mohegan story. And I've been very adamant continuously, right, about like like not uh, letting it be pulled to other elements that make it some other form of indigenous story because we don't have like a ton of plays as Mohegan people. And this is like, you know, actually weaves together a lot of the stories of what we inherit as people, not just 
no, not not traditional stories, but actually like the people, the significant figures that were raised with understanding these ancestors um, are very sort of like palpable figures in our lives and in our minds. And, and, and the journey takes us through a lot of stories like that, stories that are stories you hear over and over and over again, and you're trying to make sense out of in different ways each time you hear them. And I think that's a big lens of the story in general is sort of questioning, interrogating things that have been passed down, both Shakespeare and and why Shakespeare was chosen at the cost of indigenous languages, like why it was why the society chose to promote one thing and ban another um, and what that means and um, and and how, you know, certain historical figures were treated and maybe how that's actually not so different from how certain native leaders are treated now. And so as I move through that journey, um, it's really weird for me because when I originally did it, it wasn't like a play at all. It was actually just re-experiencing trauma and I didn't think that I would be able to do it more than a few times um and and it was very hard to get people who weren't native to understand that to actually tell a story requires something of your spirit um especially to tell a story that is connected in that way to not only uh your journey but also the journey of your ancestors and everything that's been inhabited by your people um and so that was a struggle for me over the course of the thing but then also I also encountered a lot of resistance from certain audiences because not every audience we went to knew exactly what the play was about maybe they thought it was a story about a native person who just loved Shakespeare and didn't question anything to do with colonialism or maybe they thought I was just gonna do a dance in feathers and fringe right like the fact that the piece is like deeply engaged in questioning wasn't always we weren't always going to audiences that were that kind of audience. Sometimes they were a kind of audience that expected a musical and they got this. And so it was a really interesting journey to go from space to space to space um, and be watching audiences for a year, to be honest. That's basically how I spent the last year was watching audiences. Um, uh, it was first performed in 2019 at Shakespeare's Globe, um, which was a really incredible experience actually because I was terrified it made me very sick to do it and I had thought that questioning Shakespeare in that space uh you know people would be mad at me but actually it really helped them transform their perspective on a lot of things and one of my ancestors Mahomet Weonamon who's who's buried you know um that's how the cathedral just a little ways away from from the globe I really felt like that performance of it that version was for him and it was for the ancestors who went over there and to the point of the conversation we were having earlier right this thing of like no, what did they learn from us? If we were going in both directions, like they were being influenced by us too. And honoring that and honoring that that ongoing indigenous presence uh, existed, that we were constantly going over to Europe to try and deal with things. It wasn't just that people were coming here. Um, and then uh, when the theaters were shut down and we had to record the film, it was very different because there was no one there. I was alone in space in the dark. <laughs> Um, and so, and so it's been a really interesting journey for me to think about it within the context of native theater, as you say, because it only recently, I feel like has actually become <laughs> the context of normal native theater because it wasn't originally designed to be performed in the States. It was supposed to go to the UK. And then, um, and then it was this like intermediary film version. And now each place it goes, the things that I'm thinking about are really those, those things about, Yes, I can tell if there's a native person in the audience because they laugh at things or they breathe or they don't just stare objectively the entire play. Um, you can feel things resonating. Um, you can feel the palpable shift in things resonating. So I think basically the short answer of what I'm trying to get through with my long spans of thinking things out is I think where it sits in the expansiveness of the sort of native theater canon is I feel like one um, – 
it sits as sort of a space for me as um, an acknowledgement of, well, one, there's there's sort of a general lack of Northeastern Native representation comparatively within the canon. And so I felt like it'd be very, it was very important that it feel and it, it stay very true to my, the specificity of my culture um, and that it exist in, in combat and in contrast with, right, the narrative that, that most prominently influenced sort of my people and my people's lives, which is last of the Mohegans, right? By constantly being told that we are the last. Any Northeastern narrative, unfortunately, feels like it sits very much in dialogue with the fact that there will be some large percentage of the audience that expects us not to exist. Um, not just to be a trope, but not to exist, right? That we couldn't possibly exist, that that, that was dealt with. That was dealt with a long time ago. Um, but I actually, in the development of the piece, the people who I brought into the development were actually other Native theater arti uh, um, artists my generation and younger because what I was really thinking about as I was making it was what needs to be said for the next generations to then do their work. That's what I was really thinking about. And a lot of my work in general um, for the Indigenous Performing Arts Program and in general is like thinking about like the next generation and how can I tell something or do something that'll help them. So I feel like it's weird because in some ways it's not as – it's it's not as like fun or like I like I think about a lot of the things native theater artists do or like honestly the hardest thing about this play for me is is the thing that makes it not quite native theater in my mind which is that every time they made me be alone um and I never think of native theater as being made alone or being the only native artist there I think if you're alone it's something else and I'm not sure what that is and I have to work that out but um but uh, I was constantly creating structures such as my accountability writer to make sure that there's other Native people there and other Native people in the space um, because I think the danger of a solo show within our extractive culture, within what they want Native people to be, is actually that it does become the thing that we talk about in the article that we talk is that is that they want you to be the one example. And so the entire development part, process for that show was about how do I continuously move myself out of whatever box they're putting me in? Um, and that's like the entire exercise of the piece. And how do I, when I show up in each of these theaters, which is separate from the play itself, create a rider that requires they do certain things that makes it easier for the next person who shows up in those spaces. But it's very, it's very strange for me to even think about because, yeah, whenever I did, whenever I direct, most of my work as a Native theater artist is as a director. I'm working with large casts of other Native people. I'm never alone. And, um, and yes, there's like, you know, a native dramaturg on the play. And like, yes, there was a development period where, um, there were, you know, like five other native theater artists who I had read it so we could be in dialogue with each other. But the vast majority of the process of doing a solo show is you're with your ancestors, you know, you're with your ancestors and you're with the other spirit beings and you're with the audience. Um, but on those days when the audience who shows up is hateful or the audience who shows up is uh, not interested in certain ways of seeing the world, you still have your ancestors and you still have you, but then you and your ancestors are going through historical trauma, <laughs> you know, in front of us. So, so I think that what I've actually learned in this piece more than anything else, and I'm sorry for rambling so long, is actually a lot of lessons about what is actually the process of how do we really explain to producers what is and is not the mode in which certain stories should be told? And how do we really interrogate the fact that everyone wants to make something extractive, so everyone wants to make something the same kind of play, but actually some plays are meant to exist in certain kinds of spaces and some are meant to exist in other kinds of spaces 
And, and that's actually really important how we think about sovereignty and native theater and the spectrum of that as well. Um, even though I'm really grateful that this story has reached so many people and that many people have, have written me notes and told me about how it opened up things in their minds. I think the thing that makes it hard for me to think about it in the trajectory of native theater is that while it's built on everything I know and everything that came before me, um, the thing I'm most worried about for the replacement actor who has to go on tour and do it now instead of me is that they too will have to, to some degree or another, do it alone. I'm struck. I'm, I'm struck by, as I read the piece, I was struck by the writer, the, um, the accountability writer that you added. And it reminded me of the one that Yolanda Bonnell did for Bug. Uh, Yolanda Bonnell is a First Nations playwright who also did a solo piece, but built in deep collaboration with her theater company and had very specific context in which this piece could do. And it was really this sort of share, this uh, sort of, I think that's one thread in the article, the Tewis article that we meant that was talking about how the colonial logic is a logic of extraction and the subtler colonial logic replicates that. So this question of how do we sort of create a frame? uh, How do you as a theater artist create a frame that sort of confronts Theater, as as we know, professional theater is deeply embedded in instruction as a model, and so how do you how do you intervene in that in a way that allows this to do another piece that your piece reminded me of? In certain ways, it's very very different. But I was thinking about these other three pieces from the last five years: your piece, along with Yolanda's piece, along with Delana Studi's piece, mm-hmm. um, and so we walked, which are these spaces where women, Native women, are asked to sort of hold the space alone while also invoking stories of ancestors and invoking stories of the multidimensional reality of experience in relation. Uh, to all the relations, non-human as well, but also how to live, how to how to sort of speak to. I think one of the things that struck me about Delana Studi's play talked about the challenge of becoming an elder, and that sort of really resonated for me when you were talking about. I'm not doing this for the white ladies who are confused about Brexit. I'm doing this to speak to uh, Native folks, whatever their age, who need an elder. And there's something very much, I think, tapping back to what what Bethany was talking about, about how does the theater practice um, understand itself in relationship? And the writer, this sort of stance of of being intentional about offering this story for particular reasons, it seems to me to be about one core impulse, which which is that sense of how can theater practice be center, can learn from the question of being in, in, in meaningful, reciprocal, and forward-thinking relationship and responsibility. So, so I, I, I appreciate everything you said, and I acknowledge the challenge that you're dealing with as it's sort of maneuvering this extractive industry. But, um, but I do think the apparatus of the piece you've built, actually, with the writer and other things, it's, it's, um, the intentionality is clear for anybody who's tuned in to listen. And I also just want to add to something. Thank you for saying that, Brian. I appreciate that. Something I want to as, as add was that when you said you needed an elder, I thought, oh no. <laughs> but I because uh, I'm because I'm not that old is why. So I was thinking, well, it can't all it can't all be. But I think actually, as much as for the younger people, it's knowing that yes, there is that elder. I think for the older people, yeah. it's seeing what this stupid kid is doing. <laughs> you know, it's both of those things, and seeing that oh, they're still engaged, and oh, they're still trying to make all this work together, and and um and carry things forward. And actually, uh, in some ways, I think the people who this piece has meant the most to are, are when like Mohegan elders have gotten mm. to see it because they've spent their whole lives never been able, being quite able to put their finger on how to s- express some of these things in poetic form that then they come to me and they've been like, you know, those are the people who to me, like when I've seen their reactions, I've been like, oh, cause they've, they've like, 
yeah, they, they like expressed gratitude for me to what I thought was, I thought these are things we're not supposed to talk about. I shouldn't be saying anything, you know, but they were like, like it, 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 uh, it kind of like cleared something out for them, you mm-hmm. know, that they'd been feeling, but not able to deal with because we were never seen on stage. We were only ever, you know, erased. Well, and one of the lessons of queer elderhood is elderhood, it's 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 not necessarily time. It's not chronology. Yeah. Like, you can be an elder and be much younger than the person. Like, in chronological age, you can hold the elder space in a different way. So I think that that is, like, whoever needs an elder has one because here's that's, you're doing an elder journey even if you're a young person. And that is that is just something I, I just really resonate in sort of the... the I mean, Delana names it very specifically in her work, but um, but it is one of the things. But again, that's this question of what is the relationship of this pivot of of thinking behind, thinking ahead, thinking beyond, thinking to the ground, thinking to the sky, thinking to all the relations that we walk through. And that is, I think, in some ways, because, I mean, there's some, I, I keep, there's ways in which the piece is very much about relationship with environments that did not expect you to be in relationship to them you know and that that. and that becomes uh i think in the museum sequence in particular it's just like dude you know it's like it goes deep because it's like here's somebody who comes in and is ready to be in relationship in a different way and it reveals when you look to be in relationship reciprocal relationship it reveals a lot and that's i think um i found the piece incredibly Smarty, smarty pants, and also deeply um, moving and aesthetically beautiful. So I just think you nailed it on all the cylinders. And I, I think it, I think one of the things just to name that I think one of the things that uh, I, I believe might have been Bethany, who sort of really said we should lift pieces that are available for classroom engagement. You know, to make sure that whatever we talk about today is stuff that if you want to bring this into your classroom, please do. And the the play script is just hilarious. I love the footnoting. I love the fact that you call us out of like, don't get all serious on me. This is a funny play. You know, this this way, it's a I think it's a very teachable play text, and especially showing the um the lack of fixity in the play, play text itself. Like you remind us that this play has been performed with different iterations because history has changed, location has changed, I have changed. And that is, I think, also a good reminder for us to think about when we're teaching any text, but especially a text in the native tradition. Thanks, Brian. Also, there was that thing you mentioned before that I just want to add, which is that one of the things that was most interesting to me about that text and that it is now also being taught with is just so weird to me, but I'm, I'm glad I was able to put in footnotes for that reason, <laughs> um, uh, is this thing of like, you know, uh, I go on this whole journey and, oh, one of the things I was talking about yesterday, we were talking about how in, I was in a, a closed indigenous space and we were, we were talking about uh, failure and how dramaturgically, actually, failure shows up so different in in Western stories than in Native stories. Like a lot of our world was created actually because of people messing up, you know. So so there's this this sort of different relationship to like failure being something where it's like you fail and you have a moment of humility and then you try again. It's not like you failed and then that was the end of the, <laughs> was the tragic end of the journey and it's all over. And so I think about that a lot, like within my own life and also within that play is that it's like there's there's all these moments of, you know, failing and getting and trying something else and trying something else. And and I think it's a really uh, it's a really healthy, healthy aspect of our of our culture. And also that's why I write it can't quite end. It like keeps it keeps wanting to exist in whatever it is that we've learned 
up until that moment. I'm like, wait, I found out something else. Let me add it to the epilogue. And so, um, you know, Brian mentions that the the published form of it is is great and very teachable, and it, tours will continue. Is that right? So the even if the film does not become broadly available soon, audiences may be able to catch it. In yeah, it's where? it's still touring. So it's um, it's touring uh, with a different performer this year, and then mm-hmm. I. I will be back with it next year in DC, but um, uh, so it's gonna be at Portland Center Stage uh, in Portland, Oregon, uh, for basically the month of March, um, and then in April it's in Colorado Springs mm-hmm. at I think the Fine Arts Center at Colorado College. Uh, it's at Oregon Shakespeare Festival um, from August through October, and then next year in 2024 um, I'll be doing it uh, in like February and March in DC at the Folger. Um, so, so that's the minimum of how much, <laughs> which is still around. So it's definitely still happening. And I hope that also like at some point, you know, it's available in a way where right now it's tricky because it's this full production where it's like the whole production is, where it can go back to being storytelling. I actually think it's really, really useful mm-hmm. as storytelling. It was originally told just as a person sharing space with other people. And I think that the real reason why I have, I have a tiny bit of regret about this year with other actors doing it isn't because I don't want other actors doing it. It's because I wish they were telling their stories. Uh, I have just been sitting here thinking about how the Dawes piece and the Tevis piece and Maddie's piece um, are working together to forward this conversation around sovereignty and nationhood and relationship and reciprocity. Um, And I'm thinking of the way that, um, you know, 100 and 120 years ago, there was a series of Native women doing one-woman shows. Teata, E. Pauline Johnson, Gawango Mohawk. Wait, like, there is a, a, a tradition and a history of this, um, and, and that connects to things like, you know, what is Native American drama from the 1970s on? Well, Native American drama from the 1970s on is built on people who, um, like in the case of Spider-Woman Theater, were children of um, show Indians, right? And so there's a history of theatrical employment and there's a history of things like boarding schools that mean we have sort of pan-tribal, pan-indigenous knowledges, um, you know, like sophisticated understandings of navigating bureaucratic and settler colonial institutions, uh, you know, the the way that language and presentation are all like all of these kinds of things. And so I think that, um, I mean, so I'm still stuck on this question of like, where does this piece fall in the history of Native drama? And I think this piece illustrates what Tevis is saying is that Indigenous people have always been performing ourselves. Um, and what Maddie is offering is this performance that is ever new in each place with each performer like we are continually and continuously um, in this piece remaking ourselves and reperforming ourselves in a way that connects to the past and the present and the future. Well, I cannot think of a better way to wrap up the our, our discussion of, of indigenous theater and performance. Uh, the first and, and hopefully not the last, I hope that you both would consider coming back and continuing this conversation sometime in the future. Um, but we're going to pivot now to our drafts. Um, uh, regular ONTAP listeners know that drafts, it's a play on words because the podcast is like a beer that you get a that has a tap and you have a beer and so maybe you pull a draft from the tap. Yeah, it's my, it's it's mind-blowing. I never you really knew that. Sometimes we need to, we have an early version of the logo for the show. Actually, no, I think if you look at the logo for the show, it looks kind of like the the tap that you might pull. It's quite, it's, 
we haven't had the time to re-examine the implications of what this might mean for for sober people or people. We don't hit the we don't hit the sort of alcohol part of it too hard. But listen, a draft is also a work in progress. It's something that maybe isn't complete, but that's uh, captured your attention. Um, so I don't know, Brian. Do you want to share a draft with us to lead us off? Yeah, as a sober person who's happy to share a draft, um, <laughs> I am. Uh, uh, what I'm going to say is uh, it's a little bit of an off-template draft in that um, I feel very fortunate this year that I, uh, as I look ahead to the next few months, I did the very, for the first time in a long time, I've really planned my theater going for the next couple months in advance, which is sort of like novel and weird for me. But I'm realizing that I have an opportunity this semester to engage with Native performance in ways that feels unusual and remarkable. In a couple of weeks, I get to see Between Two Knees, written by the 1491s, which is playing across the street from my house at McCarter Theater. Um, and then uh, later on, I get to go see Larissa Fast Horse's Thanksgiving play, which premieres on Broadway, which will be a fascinating experience. Um, fascinating play, fascinating experience. And then also I'm involved with an th initiative called Bard at the Gate, which is Paula Vogel's, uh, Paula Vogel's impulse to sort of share um, performance like scripts that are read and enhanced by digital interface, not necessarily Zoom theater, sort of an interesting way of a rehearsed reading that is able to sort of listen to a play in a different way. And the fourth play in the third season is by Jory Harjo, Wings of Sky and Wings of Morning Light. And so it's it's an interesting moment for me of just sort of saying I, I was able to look around and see native drama in my horizon. These are in very different locations, New York, New Jersey, but also on the web. And so it just is sort of inspiring to me. And I'm hoping other people look around and see what native drama is playing near them in the coming months, because there probably is some and it's worth looking out for. Phenomenal. Uh, Bethany? Yeah, um, so my draft is um, basically the next thing on my to-do reading list that I'm really excited about, which is this book, Vaudeville Indians on Global Circuits, 1880s to 1930s, by settler Canadian scholar Christine Bold. Um, it came out last year, and I haven't got a chance to sit down and read it yet, um, but she's doing this really deep our, you know, archival dive into Native performers in, in vaudeville um, in this time period. Um, and as someone who works on red face in 19th and 20th century, and I'm really trying to think through where that practice occurs and under what conditions and how we understand it and how we theorize it. Um, I'm really excited to see this. I knew this thing was coming. I'd heard her present at conferences several years ago. So I've just been waiting for it to come out. Um, and so that's what I am like most excited about right now. That's fantastic. I think I'll jump in with mine because mine has points of connection with <clears throat> both of the prior drafts. Um, I teach this class on contemporary comedy. It's really just about stand-up comedy, and it's a way to um, trick undergraduates from the B school into taking a class that introduces them to performance studies. Um, but we're assigning, I'm assigning this text, um, a new book by Cliff Nesteroff called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, and it's about Native American stand-up comedy. Um, Nesteroff uh, wrote a previous book um, called The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. It's a, it's a trade book, and, and he's a really intensively archival researcher who, for that book, The Comedians, basically found just an amazing amount of stuff, largely anecdotal, but really rich on uh, the untold history of comedy. And this is about uh, Native Americans and stand-up comedy, about which I don't think um, much has been written of, to this extent. Um, but it will have, you know, profiles of Charlie Hill, um, Adrian uh, Chalapa, and also the 1491s, um, which you mentioned. So I'm really excited to read this with my students. 
Maddie? Yeah. So I guess mine, it's like, it's it's sort of a draft. It's sort of like a, I don't know how to describe it, but I'm going with it. Everything is a draft right now because I don't really know exactly what the rules are. Um, so mine is uh, that submissions are currently open for the Indigenous Performing Arts Program's Young Native Playwrights Contest. Um, uh, so every single year, a uh, 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 cash prize and development opportunity is given to a Native playwright, 25 and under, um, to have their new work uh, developed at Yale. And and uh, so I am both sending this information out there in case, <laughs> in case anyone has access to Native youth who might not know about it, but also because actually some of my favorite playwrights right now are, are youth who have previously submitted to this award. Um, Thomas Enter, Dylan Chitto, Tara Moses, um, Drew Woodson, uh, Kinsale, Drake. I mean, there's like, there's, uh, there's so many. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not going to try and name them all because then I'm going to get in trouble for missing one is what's going to happen. So I'm going to name half instead. Um, but we actually were able to commission short plays from all the previous winners last year. And it just really like further proved my impulse that they're all just geniuses. Um, and so it's a really great opportunity for anybody who hears about it. But also for me, that means I get to read all the submissions, which every single year is so exciting because what it does is I can see how every single young native theater artist is building on everything that came before them, much more so than I was. When you asked me that question, I was like, damn, I really should have learned from these <laughs> submissions. But um, they really are. They're building and innovating and, and pushing past uh, all of the sort of native theater canon that I understood until this point. Um, and so it's always really exciting for me to get to read these submissions. Um, and I hope if anyone out there in the ethos hears this and knows of somebody who, um, who is a playwright or aspiring playwright, uh, that that word gets passed on. There's also a, a, an acting competition as well with deadlines around the same time uh, that was created to sort of honor the legacy of Misty Upham in relationship with her family. Um, and both of those contests um, uh, uh, have deadlines like end of February, but also it's the first time that we're having our festival back in person. So our new Native Play Festival. And so uh, the winners will also be brought out to be a part of that in the spring as well. Wow. Phenomenal. Well, we will we'll put that on the uh, podcast webpage and and hopefully um, help help spread the word about that. Um, Maddie, say it. Bethany Hughes, I can't thank you enough um, for joining and contributing your your time and talent and expertise to the podcast. Uh, Brian, wonderful to to be in conversation with you as always. And um, listeners, we will have another podcast for you in a few weeks. On Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.